If you would, remain standing and turn in your copy of the scriptures once again this evening to Hebrews chapter 2. And once again, as this morning we read the first nine verses, so this evening we will once again read those same nine verses. But while we focused on the first half of verse 9 this morning and considered Christ our mediator, this evening we look at the second half of verse 9 and consider Christ who, as our mediator, tasted death for his children. Let's turn our attention then to the reading of the infallible and inerrant Word of God, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for pouring out your Spirit upon your church and upon your people and giving us great and precious promises that as your word is read and proclaimed faithfully, that you would bless it with the power of your spirit, even to the saving and sanctifying of a people for yourself. O Lord, our God, tonight, we ask that you would once again rend the heavens and cause showers of blessing to fall upon your people, that you might use your word for its intended purpose to convert the unbeliever, and to build up the Christian in that most precious faith which you have once delivered to the saints. O Lord, we are your servants and we are listening. Please speak to us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God calls us by his word this evening to consider our enemy That enemy that's called in 1 Corinthians 15, our last enemy, death itself. For as we see at the end of this verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2, Christ was made a little lower than the angels, that he might taste death for everyone. Who here has not been affected by death to some degree? Every grave that we see at every cemetery reminds us that the wages of sin is death. Every memorial to those that have been reminds us that the soul that sins shall surely die. 
My goal this evening is not to bring you back to those most grievous times in your life when you have mourned the loss of those that you love, but it is to bring us back to that knowledge that God reveals to us in Scripture that death is real and that death is a very real enemy. It takes the young out of season. It takes the old. It takes the weak. It takes the strong. It takes the Christian. It takes the unbeliever. It takes the powerful. It takes the poor and lowly. From our perspective, death is no respecter of persons, for it takes all men at their appointed time. The world responds to this great enemy of death often by mocking it, ignoring it, covering it up. It makes interesting philosophies about death to cause people to think little of it, as if when we die, that's the end, and nothing else will happen. But there is no comfort in the world's philosophies concerning death, and there is no comfort to those that are outside of Christ when they think of death. For the only comfort in life or in death is even as That Heidelberg Catechism answer gives in the first answer of that catechism, this is the only comfort in life or in death, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. This morning... We considered the doctrine of Christ, our mediator. He who stands in between us and God and bore the very wrath of God due to us on himself on the cross. And we mentioned very briefly how he did that in his death. And tonight the text calls us to consider more this element of Christ mediation, that he who was the Lord and is the Lord, who is the King the creator of all things, that he tasted death for everyone. I want us to consider in our first heading the extent of Christ's death. What does it mean that Christ tasted death for everyone? Well, he tasted death in many respects. We could say first that Christ tasted death in this way. He anticipated death that was to come upon him. From his very opening words in his earthly ministry, he would speak of that hour that had not yet come. In John 2 and verse 4, he even spoke that way when he said, My hour is not yet come. In John 3 and verse 14 to 16, those famous words as Jesus spoke to that Pharisee Nicodemus, he told him that even as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. There in his earthly ministry, always this thing was before him, his death. Always anticipated. It was for that reason that he came. Not that he might live, but that he might die. That he might give himself a sacrifice for many sinners. He anticipated it in, throughout his ministry, including in John chapter 12. And I'll read a few verses from John chapter 12 and verse 27, where the Lord Jesus said this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. For if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. His soul was troubled even before that great time of his passion and misery leading up to his very death on the cross. But Jesus knew that as he would go to the cross and as he would be lifted up and as he would die, he would die that others might live, that others might be drawn to him. As Hebrews chapter 2 will go on to show us so vividly that he might destroy him who has the power of death, even the devil. His death was anticipated throughout his life. But then, of course, we see Christ tasting death in the very experience of his death. For that is what the word here means when it says he tasted it. He experienced it. He actually died on that cross. He experienced it to the uttermost degree. The wrath of God was poured out on the Son so that Jesus would say on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curse of sin that was due to me, that is due to me, was placed not on me but taken from me and put on my Savior, Jesus Christ. And the curse of sin that is on everyone outside of Christ, when they put their trust in Christ, it's as if that burden is lifted off and nailed, as it were, to the cross And it's removed forever. But Christ took that curse on himself. And there he who knew no sin became sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This was the experience and the tasting of death that Jesus had in his agony and suffering. But he had pain of dying. And maybe if you've been around someone who has been in their final moments of death and still conscience, sometimes they pass away peacefully. Other times there are great torments of the flesh, great sorrow and great pain that leaves one crying out in agony until the last. And as Jesus was nailed to that tree, He was in that pain and that agony. He received that cruel treatment that no one else had ever received to that extent. And as he was about to breathe his last, the Gospels tell us that he cried out with a loud voice. And as he cried out, he died. Jesus Christ died on that cross The body and the soul were separated. That's the very meaning of death, isn't it? And what does the scripture tell us? That after he cried out, he gave up the ghost. Or as another gospel puts it, he breathed his last. He died 
in every sense of that word. He died on that cursed tree. And so the Son of Man, in his tasting of death, he tasted a humiliation in his death that no one ever tasted before and no one will ever taste after. For the King of glory, the one who made all things, for whom all things were made, and who made all things, he hung on that tree, and at the hands of wicked and cruel men, he died. He who was full of all riches left those riches, so that he might be cursed and nailed to a tree for sinners. Pierced in the side, defiled even after his death, and buried in the ground like a common person. Our Savior tasted death. He did more as he died. He died for a reason. He died for every sin of his children. He laid down his life on that cross, not for anything that he had done, for he had done nothing worthy of death. In fact, he had committed no sin whatsoever. But he laid down his life on that cross for a reason, so that his children, who were on their way to death and doom and eternal destruction, might not die but live And so he took the place of his children. He substituted himself. In their place condemned he stood, and in their place he died for them. What is the man in hell, if you can imagine that horrible torment that's given to us in a few pictures by Jesus in the Scriptures? In Luke chapter 16, we see that picture of the rich man who in his lifetime did nothing to lift his finger for poor Lazarus. And he died, and Lazarus died, and Lazarus went up to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man, he went to hell. And there he was in torment, in the flames and fires of that bottomless pit that no one can see the bottom of, that is filled and ever filling with more souls, that rich man cried out. And what did he cry out for? A glass of water? No, he couldn't even dream of that. He cried out for a drop of water from the very fingertip of Lazarus, And even that was to escape him, for he in his life had all those good things and could not spare any for Lazarus. He had the gospel preached and would not put his trust in Jesus. And now he was in torment, and Lazarus was in eternal bliss. What do those in hell see? If you can picture this, They are looking up maybe 10 million years to come from now as they suffer even the torments and the just wrath of God for the smallest of their sins. 10 million years they might look up and etched on the sky they'll see eternity, eternity, eternity. That is the wages of sin. Every least sin, something we might call small. The wages of it is eternity in hellfire forever. That's the cost. That's the payment, and it's the only way that payment will be made. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, when he died, he experienced the wrath of God. He tasted of death in this way, that he suffered those eternal torments that are due to us. He suffered them all, each and every one for all of his children. That's what is meant, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Therefore, There is nothing that we have this evening to boast in, is there? 
nothing in ourselves, surely. We are but dung, we are but ashes, we are but dust before Almighty God. But we do have something to boast in. We can boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For there, the Savior of sinners tasted death for everyone, that all who call upon his name might not taste death, but would be saved. Well, what's the basis for this tasting of death that Jesus experienced in his death on the cross? Why would he do such a thing? Why would the King of glory, the exalted one, the one before whom the nations fall down in shock and in awe and in fear and in dread, why would he offer himself as a sacrifice? And why would he die? Well, the answer is given in those few words that we read at the end of verse 9, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Here is the reason that Jesus, the King of glory, Jehovah in the flesh, would taste death. The grace, mercy, love of God the Father that was before all worlds, poured out and shown in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who gave his life for sinners. The grace of God, that's the reason It's not, as some would say, to satisfy or make payment to Satan. No, no, that's not the reason Jesus came and died. It's not because he was forced to against his will. It was entirely of the free gift and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God the Father. He willingly went to do the Father's will. He willingly went to that cross to taste death for everyone. He tells that to Nicodemus as well, doesn't he? In that famous 16th verse of John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, we read this, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Oh, what are the riches of the grace and the love and the mercy and the glory of Jesus Christ, that he would taste the cruel effect and the cruel justice on the cross. sinners. You see, there is absolutely nothing then in the Christian that is worthy of Christ's death. There is nothing in you or in me that the Father would look down or look ahead through the sands of time and say, that one is special. That one is good. I will save that one. Nothing of the sort. Quite the opposite. The Lord is no respecter of persons. And in fact, there's a special delight, if you would, that he has in saving those that are the least among the peoples of the earth, even as he did with Israel, his people, who were the smallest and fewest and weakest. And it was them that he delivered and made into a great people. It doesn't matter if you are born into a faithful Bible-believing church. You can be born into the most the best, under the best preaching, the largest church, and hear all the word of God, and that bears nothing for you standing before God. It is only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by which you're saved. Your church membership does not save you. 
Someone that has a better conversion story than someone else does not have greater favor with God. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone that saves. You read the Bible 30 times and thinks that makes you better before God? No, no, no. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone by which any person is saved. And any other way that is described to us for salvation, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, received by faith alone, as it's revealed, as Christ is revealed in the Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone, is a false gospel. It steals and robs from the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Think about that, parents. Sometimes this comes up at Christmas time. Maybe you've been asked questions about Santa Claus. Why don't you teach your children about Santa Claus? Well, I, as a parent, for this reason, don't want my children thanking some phony, fake character for giving them what's under that tree on that Christmas morning rather than the one who actually gave it to them, which is their parent. It's altogether disrespectful to the parents, if nothing else, than to thank some object, some idea, some fake idea, rather than the one who actually did it. How much more, many times, exponentially worse is it to give any measure of credit to salvation, to our salvation, any measure of credit to anyone or anything else than Christ alone? No one else has tasted death for us but Christ. There is nothing else. So it's robbery to put any, anything on the works of man. It is robbery of God to give credit to any other person or object but the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, for he has done it all. How dare we even imagine giving praise to anything else, even in the smallest amount, than the praise that is rightly due to Jesus Christ, who has alone saved us, and all by his grace. There is nothing in our hands that we bring. Simply to God's cross. Christ's cross we cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There was a lady in the 1800s who was dying. A very wealthy lady. She was a great benefactor of her local church. And as she lay dying on her deathbed, this lady who had many servants, many people working for her, she had her minister come over to her home, and she had a question for him. And it's not uncommon for people as they're dying to ask great spiritual questions of their pastors. That's why pastors and elders and fellow church members need to be with the dying, ministering to them the great words of the Lord. But this woman had a very unusual question for her pastor. She asked the pastor, Pastor, when I die and go to heaven, am I going to find there two places, two categories of heaven, one for me and one for my servants that work for me? And the minister looked at that lady, and he said something along these lines. My dear lady, you have no need to worry about that. For unless you repent of your pride, you will never enter into heaven when you die. God is not a respecter of persons. There is no boasting in anything else than his grace. For as Galatians 6 verse 3 tells us, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he 
deceives himself. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why would the Son of God taste death for everyone? Because of the grace and the love of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed abroad in our hearts even through the blood of the Son. But that brings us to consider our third heading, and that is the effect of Christ's death. What is the effect of the Son tasting death for everyone? It's that sin is paid to the uttermost, fully paid through the death of the Son, so that, as Jesus would say to those that were questioning him in John 8 and verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. What a remarkable statement to us who have experienced death throughout our lives in dear loved ones, in church members, and maybe the most grievous of all deaths, in the death of an unbeliever who has forsaken Christ and closes his eyes on earth and wakes up in the fires of hell. How can Jesus say these things, that whoever keeps my word shall never see death? Look at all the apostles, they're not with us, they're dead. Look at all those great theologians of old, those men and women who suffered even to the point of death because they would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Those martyrs of old who in the Roman Colosseum, those faithful women and men who were eaten and devoured by lions to the pleasure of those that watched them. How can Jesus say that anyone who keeps my word shall never see death? What did Jesus say to Martha and Mary in John chapter 11 after the death of Lazarus, and before he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And oh, how we cheer that glorious promise of the resurrection. We will die, yet we'll live, because Christ lives, we shall live. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 26, he said, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What is it that Jesus is saying here? Because he has tasted of death in tasting of the wrath of God for us, we shall never die under the wrath of God. We who believe in Christ and only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will never taste of the wrath of God at their death. It will merely be the entrance into glory. An enemy? Absolutely. Death is always an enemy. Never think of it as anything else. But do we taste of the wrath of God when we die? No, for Christ Jesus has tasted it for everyone on the cross who believes on him. That's what is meant there by never dying. But if we do not believe, we will join those wretched souls in hell who have only eternity in torment to look forward to. An indescribable gift is presented to us in this verse, isn't it? First, that we have a mediator to come between us and God and to bear the wrath. But then this, that that mediator has tasted death for everyone. There's nothing in my hands I bring. It's freely offered. What a marvelous gift is promised to us. What a marvelous blessing. Oh, that men, women, and children all around the world would come and take hold of this. I heard over the weekend, and I don't have all the details of this. Forgive me for that. 
But I heard that in New York City, there was a promotion that was made, that something like a free PlayStation system was going to be given away. And that a riot started over it. More than 1,000 people came out to try to win or get that free PlayStation. And they had to call out the riot police, and there was a great uproar. Folks, a much greater gift is being offered today. A PlayStation that can be here today and break tomorrow? That's not worthy of our time and adoration. Eternal life that's freely offered in Christ Jesus? Oh, that all of Tucker and Atlanta would be gathered around to hear how to receive eternal life. It's freely offered in Jesus Christ because on that cross, he tasted death to the uttermost for all that would come to him by faith. So the call is, come to him by faith. Why would you keep on pursuing those things that promise much and give nothing when he who promises all, even eternal life, and gives it, lay down his life as testimony to it and as payment for you to have eternal life? Come to Christ by faith. Repent of your sins. But notice this word that I'm sure some of you have already been asking in your mind, everyone. Is this an Arminian verse? Is this a verse that's teaching universal salvation? Jesus Christ tasted death for everyone. Brothers and sisters, when you're reading the Bible and you come across something that looks like it's contradicting what you know, what you've heard, what you've read elsewhere, read the context. See what else is going on around those verses to make it clear. Who is this everyone for whom Jesus tasted death? Well, you'll remember that these verses are following the argument of the writer of Hebrews, even from the first chapter, which closed in this way, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? That's who everyone is, everyone who will inherit salvation. But you can go ahead as well in the context, and if you would look at verse, uh, look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. The brethren, those that will inherit salvation, everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said this before, I'll say it again. This is the most inclusive message in all the world. That everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, bar none, will be saved. How inclusive can you possibly imagine it? There's no restriction for for nation. There's no restriction for tribe. No restriction for language. No restriction over male and female, young or old, rich or poor. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever would believe on him shall be saved. What an inclusive gospel. That's the everyone here. But it's also exclusive, isn't it? It's only those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that shall be saved, that will not taste death. If they refuse, if they hear today and they turn their ears, have so many have done and said, I don't want a part of that, it's too easy. They will not have their sins forgiven. They do not have them forgiven. And they will taste the wrath of God at that day and join that rich man and the many others who have perished in foolishness and are now abiding in eternal destruction. But everyone, 
and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they are saved. And they are numbered among this everyone. And you see then, I hope, how important the doctrine, a clear doctrine of Christ as our mediator is. Because if we have this concept of Christ as as a mere man that some teach, that he was a created man, which is a false doctrine, he was begotten, not made, he was put positionally below the angels so that he might be able to die and rise again, but he is the God-man. And as the God-man, he is able to bear the wrath of God for the sins of everyone who comes to him by faith. A mere man can't do that. The God-man is able to bear the wrath of God. What a glorious promise is given to us in this one verse. But there's another effect, great effect for us, marvelous effect for the child of God. But there's effect for tasting death, even for the son himself. And what do we read in the middle of this verse? That Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. In some ways, this is the highlight of the verse, because it's exalting the name of Jesus. Salvation for us, glorious. Christ crowned king and reigning and ruling over all, even more glorious. His glory is exalted. Far from entering into a perpetual state of humiliation by dying, as you know, Jesus Christ did not stay under the power of death. But he who had power to lay down his life had power to raise it up again, and he did just that. On the third day, he who was dead arose from the dead with great power and glory. All those people that thought they had crushed the king of glory on the cross, it was them and their leader, Satan himself, who was actually crushed on the cross. Satan was defeated, crushed under the foot of the king of kings. So that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Philippians 2, verse 8 through 10, can say this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus at his name every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. They cursed and they mocked that night on Calvary. They laughed and scorned. They divided his garment by lots. They pierced his side. And yet it was at that very cross that Jesus Christ was having the greatest victory and he was drawing all peoples to himself as he said, for I must be lifted up that I might draw many people to myself and be saved. By his sufferings and death he has obtained the victory Death and him who have the power of death are destroyed. Christ tasted death for every one of his children, that they might not taste death, but have everlasting life. If you, brother and sister, have tasted of the glory and the mercy and the grace of God in Christ Jesus, who died for us, then there are some questions that come to us. How should we then live before him? He who has done these wonderful things, how must we respond? Shouldn't his commandments then be most pleasant to our ears? Shouldn't we make it our whole joy in life to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself? Jesus said, if you love me for what I've done, is the implication, keep my commandments 
Shouldn't that be our delight? It's no longer there as, as, our, as, as if it were some sort of covenant of works, which was never given for that. But it's no longer a burden and a taskmaster. It's now the joy of our life to serve God and keep his commandments because Christ the mediator has tasted death for everyone. Shouldn't his words be most precious to our ears, that we would delight and desire to not only read them but hear them? that we might desire to hear them preached and expounded and taught to us that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like someone who stumbles upon a gold mine, they are not satisfied just scratching the surface for whatever gold they find. But what will they do? Excavate, dig deeper, search for more. See what's in that great gold mine. Oh, isn't the word of God like that? Deep in unfathomable minds we find the glorious riches of Christ, how we ought to go into his word daily. Shouldn't his day be most remembered by his people? We spoke of this in Sunday school the last few weeks, haven't we? Of the glorious gift that God has given to us, revealed in his moral law, revealed at creation, the Lord's day, the Sabbath day. A day not for bondage, not for misery, not for legalism, but to delight in the Lord our God, that we might see him like Jacob saw him as he wrestled with him before meeting his brother Esau, that we might be lifted up out of the fleshly things of the earth that take us down, lifted up to the heights to look down and see the world as God sees it and be fed with the inheritance of Jacob our father. Ought not not thou that to be our delight? Shouldn't that be our desire since Christ has tasted death for everyone. And then shouldn't we hear this glorious message of salvation through Christ for all who believe and tell it to the nations, tell it to our neighbors, tell it to those that are gathered together in Atlanta, in Lawrenceville, in Tucker, wherever you might live. Ought we not to not hide this great glory, as it were, under a basket, like Jesus told us not to do? but to set that light high up on a hill, to live out the glory of Jesus Christ as best we can in our lives, which includes confessing our sin to our neighbor when we sin against him, and saying, this is the way to everlasting glory, and this is my desire for you that you would enter into everlasting glory. And here's the way, it's Jesus, he's tasted death for everyone. How ought we to tell our friends and our neighbors the gospel that they might not perish Because here's something that maybe some of you have thought before. I have to give credit to Charles Spurgeon who used this illustration in one of his sermons. As he said, one of his great nightmares would be thinking about at the resurrection when the righteous and the unrighteous are raised together and the righteous are on the right hand and the unrighteous are on the left. And as their unrighteous are being put into hell for all eternity, one would look at Charles Spurgeon and say, I knew you in this life. Why did you never tell me that Jesus Christ had tasted death for everyone and I could have freedom from this bondage and sin and destruction and go to everlasting glory? Think about that. Does not the Lord tell us we are to take every thought and word and deed captive? Are we not to stand firm in this day of opposition and tell our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers of the glory of Christ when we have opportunity to do so? Oh, the Lord Jesus is going to say in a couple verses that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Are we ashamed to call him Lord, Savior, Friend? 
Let us confess the Lord Jesus Christ as we hear the glories of his riches and grace. Christ, the taster of death, has been raised up in glory. Yes, the graves that we see, the memorials that we stand outside of, they cry out, death, curse, evil, destruction. But there is another cry that goes out. It's Christ, the Lamb that was slain, who cries out, conquered, conquered, conquered. For He has tasted death for everyone, so we can cry out, death, Where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? For Christ has swallowed up the sting of death, and he has gained victory over it for us. All praise to Christ, the taster of death for everyone. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we marvel at your goodness and grace tonight that you would come into this world of sin perdition, evil continually, and that you would let yourselves, yourself be taken at the hands of wicked men and nailed to a tree and lifted high for those that you made in your image to mock. We thank you for the grace and the love of God. We marvel in it. It is our greatest joy and delight, our only boast, your cross, your grace, your work even Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is even now reigning in heaven. Oh, Lord, our God, we ask that you would help us now to draw near to you with all holy confidence as children to a father, because you are able and ready to help us in these dark days. Oh, Lord, encourage us as we go out into the world tomorrow and keep us in and standing on the rock of Christ until we shall be back in your court your house, even in Zion, and the Lord's day to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.